Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So we've been going through this series on identity. What is identity? Why is identity so hard to find right now? Why does it seem like not even the culture wars, the constant pressures and pulls of society, but within our own hearts and souls, how do we find and know who we truly are in order to answer this question? We've been walking with Augustine through his confessions, and so far in book one, we talked about the beginnings of identity, those origins of identity through language and memory and mystery at the beginning of ourselves, which we then followed with an examination of the land of shadows in our identity, the way in which the sins and rebelliousness and distraction and enigmas within ourselves pull and fragment our identity apart. We left Augustine on a pretty somber note in book four with the tragic death of his friend, where he finds himself empty and alone. So in this episode, we're going to pick up books five, six, and seven of the Confessions. And what we're going to find is this slow but insistent turning that is happening within Augustine's heart. It is his returning back to God. And yet what I love about Augustine that you're going to see through these books is that this isn't a radical lightning bolt from the sky. This is not a shock to the self of identity where everything suddenly collapses in on itself. No, Augustine's painting this picture whereby God is slowly and intentionally crafting this path that is gently pulling Augustine back to God. And Augustine is going to be honest. There are lots of ebbs and flows. There are lots of delays and distractions within himself that keep him from getting there. Yet the journey is going to be fascinating and offer us a number of insights in how we too have been slowly turning back to God. So come with me as we continue this journey through the confessions as we talk about Augustine and the crisis of identity. Let's dive in. Okay, so if you're following along in the confessions, I'm going to be diving into book five. Book five has a number of fascinating aspects to it. The main biographical aspects that Augustine's going to give us in book five is that he leaves Carthage, he leaves Africa so that he can go to Rome. He notes how he wrote a book on beauty like any pretentious late 20-year-old. I've made a few episodes on beauty myself. And in his reflections on beauty, Augustine recalls, he doesn't even remember what he's written at this point, which is kind of humorous. We don't actually have the book anymore, so we don't know what he's written either. Although, of course, anyone who's an Augustine scholar would kill to get their hands on what Augustine was writing in his early days before converting to Christianity on beauty. But as he writes this book on beauty, he commends himself to this impressive senator in Rome that he's trying to influence. You can just see in Augustine, it was all about ambition. It was about social climbing. Here he was ready to go to New York City or Washington, D.C. or London or whatever your hub of whatever your status symbol is. And this move to Rome is going to highlight an interesting facet I haven't really touched on so far through the Confessions, which is the presence of Augustine's mother, Monica. I mentioned in our episode on book one that Monica plays a central role. Augustine is going to recall famously in his early life when he became a manichae in book three, that his mother has this dream, and this dream vividly for his mother depicts a word in which God assures Monica that her son will come over with her, will join her where she stands in the Catholic faith, and Augustine, cheekily as a son, as only a son would say to his mother, suggests to her, does she perhaps have it wrong? Does the dream actually mean to tell her that she's going to join him as a manichae? And instead, he says she adamantly resists and refuses, saying, no, I know that you will come with me to the Catholic faith. So his mother's kind of there looking over him, and yet she's distraught by this entire experience. She's constantly crying over the loss of her son, the wandering of her son. Augustine will often refer to Monica's tears. And he notes in book five that when he goes to move to Rome, his mother is horrified. She sees this as 
utterly worldly and secular ambition. She pleads with him not to leave. She pleads with him not to leave the family, not to leave her. And she is actually going to follow him eventually to Rome. And then will follow him when he moves from Rome onto Milan. And then will follow him when he returns to Africa. This is going to highlight a number of challenging factors when it comes to interpreting Monica. On the one hand, many Freudian psychologists will note that there is this intense relationship between Monica and her son Augustine, and there's this tendency when you're reading Augustine's descriptions of Monica, particularly through these early books, that he has a very rosy, a very glossy image. I mean, you really sense, and this is what the Catholic Church did with Monica as they venerated Augustine, they ultimately venerated Monica as well. She's depicted as this profound saint of tears, the widow who is constantly knocking on the door of the judge, pleading with Father God to bring her son back to the Catholic Church. And she is often presented as this saintly mother who is the ultimate perseverer in righteousness. She clings to this vision from God when no one else does. She sees a hope for a future, and it's through her tears that Augustine is saved. I'm kind of addressing at first pass the cynical view to Monica, where I think, and I'm, I'm with Augustine scholars on this. I think if we were to meet Monica, she would be more human than Augustine initially paints her. And so it's worth being aware that there is this very glossy perspective of Monica that Augustine seems to intentionally be conveying. Now, it helps to understand that Augustine, in his many layers of imagery to the confessions, sees his mother as a symbol of the church. So there is a real sense where even as the church is going to venerate Monica into this incredible saint of tears, Monica conveys to his imagination, Monica conveys intentionally to his readers, the image of the church enduring in her present witness, enduring in faithfulness and tears over a soul who has wandered from her, Augustine is happy for that sort of symbolism to linger. The only last thing I'll note about Monica that we probably won't pick up again until this next episode is that by book nine, book nine is actually really important in the journey of Monica. Book nine is when Augustine finally comes and sort of pulls down the veil of saintliness that he has been covering Monica with up to this point. He's going to acknowledge some of Monica's flaws. And I was just working through an interesting article that was highlighting book nine seems to be this important moment when Augustine acknowledges that Monica, much like Augustine himself, is a human, a human in need of grace. And it is only in the sort of full maturity of Augustine's own journey, only in the completion of what happens between him and his mother in book nine, that Augustine is going to be able to see her as she is, and invites us as his readers to see her as she is. So just to say, there's this sophisticated account taking place with Monica, his mother, that has warranted a lot of stimulating, controversial thoughts. And I think Monica is meant to play a central role as we see the mother of the church hovering over Augustine and his psyche. Every insight he gives to her, every scene he depicts of her is fascinating. And yet, I don't think it's worth, when we're talking about identity, getting too distracted, too distracted by an over-Freudian interpretation of the enmeshment of Augustine as his mother. I think he intentionally weaves a bit of complicated enmeshment into his storytelling intentionally, but he's saying something other than just, this is how me and my mom were. Now, all that to say... As Augustine travels to Rome, he's going to start noting with increased prevalence in this chapter that there's a part of him that considered not going to Rome, but his friends sort of encouraged him. In his friends encouraging him to go to Rome, he actually points out that it was the Lord who was snatching him away. This is a quote from the Confessions. He's going to say, In them, your deep secret providence was at work, and your ever-present mercy, and these are to be pondered and proclaimed. So Augustine sees in these movements of his life as he gets talked into going to Rome that the Lord is is doing something. Something is taking place within Augustine. Now, while he's in Rome, he's going to get really sick. He's going to connect more to the Manichees. He is going to start shifting away from his Manichaean commitment. There's going to be this key incident in book 
five that Augustine chronicles of this famous Manichaean teacher named Faustus. Faustus was heralded across the land as the great teacher of Manichaeism. And while Augustine is in Africa, he's sort of pressing on Manichaeism and is starting to realize he may not be as into it as he initially was. He keeps being told that when Faustus comes, Faustus is going to answer all his questions. Faustus is this great teacher who will finally be able to sort Manichaeism out, and Augustine tells this underwhelming story that many of us can probably relate to, where when Faustus finally shows up, he notes that Faustus is an undeniably gifted orator, he has smooth and silky words, he is impressive in front of people, but when it came to actually asking Faustus questions, and Augustine is actually going to press a few philosophical works towards Faustus, asking him how he responds to these various philosophical thinkers, Faustus reveals himself to be quite unknowledgeable, and even Augustine says, not ungraciously so, Faustus will say at some point, I I haven't actually read those books before, so I don't know the answer to those questions. For Augustine, this is a very disillusioning and sort of shattering experience that's going to keep being confirmed by his time in Rome. And so in Rome, Augustine is going to start shifting from Manichaeism to what we now look back and call skepticism, the skeptics, the school of academic skeptics. He's going to refer to them as the academics. And basically, skeptics are, as they sounded, a school of rigorous philosophy that was committed to only knowing that which could be known for certain. There's a lot of appeals to the school of skepticism. Skepticism is sort of underneath a lot of the postmodern shifts that have continued to take place in the last century. And so there's some fascination here that Augustine is going to move next to the deconstructive phase of his intellectual life. I think, again, so many of us can resonate with the sense where you meet a heralded celebrity that was meant to hold all the answers, whether it was an academic celebrity, a political celebrity, a celebrity in general, or someone who was high up in your career aspiration field. And you start to realize they're not actually providing the hoped-for vision of the good life you thought they would. And so you're forced back on yourself to pull out any resources that can help you deconstruct the ideologies and beliefs that you used to have. And while this too can be a rather stimulating time, you start feeling excited that you're deconstructing what you used to believe. You more and more are left with nothing in return. The foundations of a deconstructed ideology are nothing. That's one of the challenges of skepticism, that it's hard to build when you're committed to constantly unbuilding that which you can only know for certain. So you can hear in this, Augustine's kind of stuck. Again, just think that so many of us can identify with this in our own identities. Where are the moments where you just find that that thing you thought that would help, that thing you were chasing doesn't quite get you there? Your beliefs are a little bit in tatters. The icon, the celebrity of hope that you had that would maybe offer you insight has left you run aground. And he's there in Rome. He's there in sort of the height of it all. And it's it's just not really moving him. It's not working anymore. He's not sure what he's doing. So he gets this unexpected opportunity. Quite incredibly, I, I do think this points to the giftedness of Augustine along with he would note just the luck, the chance that happens. He doesn't even go into much details about it. But Augustine happens to write a letter to someone in the imperial court in Milan. So at this point, the emperor had left Rome because Rome was decrepit, it was decaying, it had certain vulnerabilities and threats, as well as a pretty contentious senate. So at this time, the emperor was residing in Milan, had set up his imperial court in Milan, and Augustine is offered a post as an orator in the emperor's court. This is basically a job to be a propagandist for the emperor. You would write and deliver these moving speeches that were ultimately there to highlight how incredible and powerful the emperor was. There likely were a few others that would have been doing this as well, so this isn't the only post, but it's a pretty impressive gig. It's something equivalent to becoming a speechwriter for a president. You know, there's, there's nowhere higher up to go as a speechwriter. You're not necessarily the one who's wielding all of the power and influence. Indeed, Augustine, even in Milan, is going to start looking for his dream job would be that of a governor, a proconsul who's positioned to oversee this vast swath of the empire, has a really cush existence, is able to have a lot of money and wealth because of his position as a governor. So this is sort of a stepping stone to that for Augustine. It's not the full top top, but he is there. I mean, as an orator, you can't 
really hope for a much better opportunity than to go to Milan. And Augustine is just nearing his 30th year of life. So I'm comforted by this. Augustine is advancing. He's making progress. But his identity is sort of wavering. He's a little bit on the brink. You're going to hear this in book six. Before we get to book six and one of my favorite scenes in the Confessions, there's this final note that part of what Augustine sees happening in his life is that when he's positioned in Milan, so when he receives this post, it's the imperial post, so there's a lot of prestige and influence. He's excited to be receiving it. The real emphasis of what Augustine sees happening in God's providential movement in his life is that in Milan is stationed a bishop named Ambrose. Now, Ambrose is the bishop at this point. Ambrose has this awesome personal story. I really do like Ambrose, even though he hasn't been as significant theologically for the church. Ambrose was mostly borrowing a lot from Origen, was not the innovative and creative thinker that Augustine would be, or that the Cappadocian fathers were, or that even other theologians writing on the Trinity would have been. But Ambrose is still a pretty big deal. And the reason for it is that Ambrose came from an incredibly wealthy family, like next level wealthy family. And Ambrose is positioned, is put forth as the governor of Milan, as the one who's overseeing this province. So an incredibly wealthy position. And yet Ambrose is also a Christian, is an intellectual, so is rigorously trained as reading the, the writings of Origen, is right here in this crucial moment of Christianity, developing and expanding its teaching and identity. And, and the story goes that the people, as the Bishop of Milan died, made this bid to say, the person we want to oversee to become bishop in Milan is Ambrose. And Ambrose, against his will, every bishop in the early church resisted the call to become a bishop. But he basically gets moved from this high up rank of governor, this very wealthy position of governor. He gives it all up so that he can take over the church, assume this role of bishop in Milan. And all the stories that we have are that he was incredibly well suited to it. He never marries. So he commits to a life of celibacy and chastity. He has the, a couple of really epic encounters with various sects and political forces from the Roman Empire. Um, there's one story of crowds that surrounded his church. I think it was a controversy involving the Donatists, so the separatist movement of the church. And he has the doors closed, and he makes this bid where he says, I'm going to walk going to proceed into the church. We're going to still hold this service. And basically, he has so much influence in the town that nobody touches him as he carries the cross into the church. I mean, this is an epic character who would have been well-known, well-revered, and was particularly regarded as a moving orator and as an intellectual. So if you're tracking with Augustine's story, what's so compelling, what's so beautiful, what's intriguing, is that Augustine shows up in Milan as Ambrose is positioned as the Bishop of Milan. And what Augustine is going to say, beautifully, I'm reading now from the Confessions again, this is near the end of book five. He goes, so I came to Milan and to Bishop Ambrose. Isn't that beautiful that in the city, Augustine sees Ambrose as it wasn't just the city of Milan that he was coming to, it was to Ambrose himself that God was drawing him. Augustine's going to say he was known throughout the world as one of the best of men. He was a devout worshiper of you, Lord. And at that time, his energetic preaching provided your people with choicest wheat and the joy of oil and the sober intoxication of wine. Did you catch there the beautiful sacramental imagery where Augustine is saying his preaching was like the very bread and wine of life that we were eating and drinking on. Unknowingly, I was led by you to him so that through him I might be led knowingly to you. So what Augustine describes in his poll to Ambrose is that he's going to show up at Ambrose's church more than anything else just to hear the famed oratory skills. He's kind of interested in Ambrose as a preacher, as a fellow tradesman in the craft of oratory. And yet he's going to say as he listens, I mean, he can't help but have the sermon start to penetrate his heart. And as I make this sort of more contemporary to our present day, I'm struck, I am struck by how many stories I have heard when it comes to celebrity pastors, where for all of the critiques of celebrity pastoring, they're, they're pretty much all warranted. One of the things I've found over and over again is I'll talk to people 
who say, I became a Christian because of the power of so-and-so's preaching for my life. Like, it just gripped me. It got me. It changed me. I was just talking to someone the other day who said, I was going through the hardest season of my life, and then I just started listening to these Tim Keller sermons. And it was like every night before I'd go to bed, I would just put on another sermon. And these sermons carried me through this season. They transformed me. They were so deeply moving to me. And I was reflecting on this story after this guy shared this of like, man, isn't it sort of tragic and sad that we're so celebritized, you know, that we, we so idolize our celebrities. And yet, yet I can't help but think, I mean, God gifted someone like Tim Keller. God gifted Ambrose with oratory skill and power that would be in such a place, in such a time, for a thinker like Augustine, whose objections to Christianity were as intellectual as they were emotional, whose objections to Christianity were operating in this deep pit of his stomach of, of desire, of the impulse to either be pushed away from the shallowness and superficiality of faith, or drawn towards the beauty and compellingness of Christ. And what God did was move Augustine to Milan under the tutelage of the Bishop Ambrose. And it's going to be partly this power of Ambrose's preaching that God is going to use to dislodge and disrupt the resistances in Augustine's heart. I mean, who am I to say that these incredibly gifted preachers, as much as we fawn over them, as much as we idolize them, as much as we give them too much power by buying all their books and showing up to conferences to hear them speak, I see how teachings, powerful teachings by key charismatic figures have profoundly shifted moments in my life. Like certain preachers actually have kept me in the faith, have drawn me back to the faith, have reworked what the faith is for me. And that's part of why I myself continue to return to this craft of teaching and preaching. There is a real power here to the word of God preached and declared to transform a human heart. So in Augustine's story, we conclude book five with him now mysteriously in Milan. Book six is going to be kind of fun. Monica shows up in book six again. She's going to have followed him to Milan. She, Augustine recalls, actually becomes really admired by Ambrose. So she sort of inserts herself into this church with Augustine. I mean, it is classic overbearing mom. And yet she is such a devout Christian as Augustine paints her that Ambrose himself is going to say, this is an incredible woman of the faith. And she goes to pressure Ambrose at a couple points, suggesting to him, Ambrose, can you do something about my son? Can you talk to my son? Can you? Ambrose is going to resist her with a lot of wisdom and yet with gentleness where he says, listen, I, I think your son's closer than you think. Let's just give him some space to figure this all out. So Augustine has these fun stories about Ambrose of how he kept wanting to get one-on-one -on -one with Ambrose so that he could ask Ambrose some questions, some philosophical questions he'd been wrestling with. And yet he says, whenever he'd go to talk to Ambrose, Ambrose would always be studying in his study. And Ambrose has this peculiar practice to Augustine. He says him and all of his peers were baffled by, in which they would go into the study. They would be allowed to enter into the church to enter where the bishop was residing. And rather than the typical practice where most people in the ancient world, in fact, some would suggest all in the Roman Empire, would read by speaking aloud the words they were reading. So everyone, when they would go to read, would just read out loud what it was they were reading. It was the clearest way to stay focused, to distinguish the rhythms and the pace and the flow of what it was they were reading. Ambrose does this unusual practice in which he reads silently, where his lips are moving, his eyes are moving, and yet he is not speaking aloud the words that he is reading. And Augustine is fascinated by this and says that it was such a bizarre sight for him and his peers that they never knew if they should interrupt him because they were afraid, you know, if, if he was reading out loud, it would be for the benefit of others. And you would occasionally throw questions at the person reading, you know, what, do you, what does that mean? Could you tell us more? Could you unpack what this is? But because Ambrose is reading silently, some suggest comically that maybe Ambrose read silently to avoid being questioned by these onlookers. And so long in the short, Augustine notes, though he wanted to draw close to Ambrose, he never gets his one-on-one -on -one audience. And this is probably for the best Augustine sees because the Lord is working, is stirring, is 
disquieting Augustine's heart. So Augustine describes this period as this slow turning. I think this is so encouraging for us in our identities. All of us want these drastic moments of conversion. All of us want, I know I do, the lightning bolt moments where suddenly our identity becomes clear, where we receive a word or a picture or a role or a title or something that finally just lets us feel secure, whether it's secure in our Christian identity, like I am a small group leader, I am a pastor, I am a teacher, or in our careers where it's I finally now am the CEO, I finally am an entrepreneur, I finally am successful. Yet, as all of us know, those lightning bolt moments rarely, if ever, come and are often only seen in hindsight. In order for any identity to emerge, it's going to be the slow working of culminating influences that are building up around us in the shifting and the formulating of who we are. So I love this little paragraph by Augustine. It's not overly consequential. He's just reflecting on what was taking place in Milan as he's moving away from Manichaeism. He's been moving through skepticism, and now he's slowly moving back to Christianity. He's going to say, so it was, Lord, that you began little by little to work on my heart with your most gentle and merciful hand, and dispose it to reflect how innumerable were the things I believed and held to be true, though I had neither seen them nor been present when they happened. How many truths there were of this kind, such as events of world history or facts about places and cities I've never seen. How many were the statements I believed on the testimony of friends or physicians or various other people. And indeed, unless we did believe them, we should be unable to do anything in this life. With what unshakable certainty, moreover, did I hold fast to the belief that I had been born of particular parents, yet I could not have known this without believing what I had heard. So you persuaded me that the true blameworthy people were not those who believed in your scriptures, the scriptures which you had established with such authority throughout almost all nations, but those who refused to believe in them. So Augustine's just shifting in his intellectual world. He's starting to see he has a lot of reason to believe that which he had been resistant to before. And he, in his skepticism, ironically, is starting to see some of his own doubts are in fact now worthy of doubting. His doubts that said the scriptures were not beautiful, that they were not compelling, that they were not convincing because they described things which he would have to accept on testimony that he did not have direct experience of himself. I mean, these are basic apologetics in some ways, and yet they're vital apologetics in identity work that they're starting to ground this new foundation for belief, and yet Augustine has not yet been moved towards it. He, if you remember for Augustine, his loves and desires are what's so central to what's going to animate, to, to pull in this gravitational sense, Augustine out of himself. And so this scene takes place in book six that I've always loved. I've actually thought about it often in my life. There's this scene of disruption. And much like the pear tree, this, this scene has a lot to say, even more than what immediately grabs you on the surface. So I'm just going to read it. Augustine says, I was hankering after honors, wealth, and marriage, but you were laughing at me. Very bitter were the frustrations I endured in chasing my desires, but all the greater was your kindness in being less and less prepared to let anything other than yourself grow sweet to me. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Look at my heart, Lord, you who have willed me to remember this and confess to you. You freed my soul from the close clinging, sticky morass of death. Let it now cling to you. How wretched it was, you probed its wound to the raw, to persuade it to leave all else behind and be converted to you, who are above all things, without whom nothing whatever would exist, be converted to you and find healing. I recall how miserable I was and how one day you brought me to a realization of my miserable state. I was preparing to deliver a eulogy upon the emperor in which I would tell plenty of lies with the object of winning favor with the well-informed by my lying. So my heart was panting with anxiety and seething with feverish, corruptive thoughts. As I passed through a certain district in Milan, I noticed a poor beggar, drunk, as I believe, and making merry. I groaned and pointed out to the friends who were with me how many hardships our idiotic enterprises entailed. 
Goaded by greed, I was dragging my load of unhappiness along and feeling it all the heavier for being dragged. Yet while all our efforts were directed solely to the attainment of unclouded joy, it appeared that this beggar had already beaten us to the goal, a goal which we would perhaps never reach ourselves. With the help of these few paltry coins he had collected by begging, this man was enjoying the temporal happiness for which I strove by so bitter, devious, and roundabout a contrivance. His joy was no true joy, to be sure, but what I was seeking in my ambition was a joy far more unreal, and he was undeniably happy, while I was full of foreboding. He was carefree, I apprehensive. So the more you think about this scene, the more intriguing it is, isn't it? I mean, this isn't something that you probably hear your pastor talk about from the pulpit. But imagine a true and good friend of yours pointing out a drunk beggar on the street and asking you the challenging question, is that person happier than you and I? Now, immediately you'd say, well, sure, for a moment. I mean, they have a momentary happiness. But we, we're, we're building something here. We're, we're doing something better. We're working towards a longer goal. Yet for Augustine, as he, as he tries to think about what work he's building, the goal that he's moving towards, he sees already in Milan, every step he's taken towards success has been a step built on deception, built on corruption, built on this twisted sense of self in which it's not really for anyone else. It's really for himself. What he's doing is seeking his own happiness. If there's all this burden of cost upon his soul, right? He feels within his identity that in order for him to have achieved what he had already achieved, he had to be false to himself. He had to actually spread lies to suck up to so many important people to put himself out there as a conduit of the emperor whom he didn't really believe in or truly support anyways. Augustine looks at this beggar in this moment and says, has he achieved something that I will never taste? Has he achieved a freedom, an uninhibited joy that yes, though it might for him be but temporary, is that not everything I'm attempting to grasp and yet seem to be moving in the entirely wrong direction for. Now, Augustine's point is clearly not that to live the truest life you're meant to live, one should simply eat, get drunk, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's one of the phrases Paul highlights is taking place in Corinth. Instead, Augustine sees this seed of hope for happiness, for the good life, for a sense of uninhibited joy and freedom is not actually waiting for him if he continues down the path of success and worldly ambition. I think that thought, that hunch, that insight, maybe it doesn't resonate with you, but it speaks to me. It catches me anytime I start walking back down the path towards success. I personally resonate with Augustine's ambition. Some people I know are not ambitious. Maybe if you're listening to this, maybe ambition does not hold sway for you. I find often the opposite of ambition is security. So maybe for you, like the true path to happiness, the true path to joy, to that uninhibited freedom and joy is to find absolute security. And typically that security looks like having a very nice home, that is very well kept and a very stable budget and a very steady source of income and a very strong group of friends and all of your energy and effort is put towards kind of continuing to solidifying to shoring up that stability, that that security that you're trying to build. Of course, the challenge, if that's you, which in some ways I envy you, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I was geared towards security and stability. I know those close friends of mine who are geared that way tend to have a stabler existence. But the problem with security is that you constantly are finding the security threatened under assault. You constantly find the security wearing down. I mean, the home that you've built begins to crumble. The money that you've saved begins to be drained. The income which you've built up never seems like quite enough to sustain the various levels of life, particularly if you ever add anything to that steadiness, and then even friendships can get kind of wavery and uncertain. So you're just constantly living with this 
low-level anxiety of being under threat that the security, the stability you've been trying to build is not actually under your control. That's one path. My path tends to look more like Augustine's path towards ambition, where my constant curse is that I want more. I just want more of whatever it is that I'm doing. I want more vacation when I'm on vacation. I want more home that I'm currently living in. I want more possessions. I want more food. I want more drink. I want more success. So if I taste a little bit of success, I'm like, I want more of that. Can you give me more, please? And there's, of course, a wonderful gift in ambition. Ambition pushes me out of myself. Ambition encourages and energizes me to take risks that others may not take. But ambition has this constant crisis where when you are seeking more, you often are willing to sacrifice some measure of integrity, some measure of security in the pursuit of whatever your ambition or aim is. And so I picked up and I moved out of town from Arizona where I was junior high, high school. And I went to Chicago and it was a move of ambition. And I stayed in Chicago because of a move of ambition. I pursued graduate school out of a move of ambition. I bought a house out of a move of ambition. I sold a house and moved back into the city out of a move of ambition. We moved our family over to Northern Ireland as a move of ambition. And yet the more I turn and look, I see that the things I was sacrificing along the way, the dubious moments even where I, for the sake of ambition, sold some form of my character or integrity or present happiness in order to get whatever the bigger picture was that I was pursuing at the time. As I'm walking down this path, I have a moment where I catch myself with Augustine where you see the beggar on the street, the man with no possessions, the man with nothing to his name, no status, no wealth, no fame. And yet the man who has just managed by putting together a few coin to get a drink that utterly intoxicates him to the point of uninhibited singing and speaking and clear merriment and delight. And you look at that beggar and you ask yourself, has he tasted in this short temporary moment something that I will never achieve because I am always focused on the next thing, because I'm always chasing more? Is my identity built on ambition? Or is it built on something deeper that can actually satisfy? That's the disruption of the beggar. And as with so many scenes in his confessions, it's so vivid. It it sits with you. It lingers. And it becomes this invitation anytime you glimpse it out and about. I've one or two times had this thought come to me when I see an actual beggar on the street who seems to be happy or high or whatever else is going on. I ponder not only hopefully feeling moved to compassion and to mercy, but I ponder the way in which the world tells me I am doing so much better than that beggar. And yet on an internal soul state, that beggar may be closer to freedom than I am in my bounded existence to chasing ambition and success. But even more than that, there's times I I had a moment about a year ago now where I was eating dinner. And most of the time when you're eating a meal, you're with somebody else, business lunch or church get together, just gathering with friends. But every now and then you find yourself in that slightly strange and comfortable position where you go to eat alone. And whenever you go to eat alone, you realize how strange it is to be eating alone. I know some people, maybe if you're listening, you end up eating alone a lot. And I feel for you because it's a little bit of a lonely experience. You kind of want to escape it. And so my temptation whenever I'm eating alone is I always go to pull on my phone. I'm like, I just want to get through this. You know, I'm going to like watch something or listen to something or read something so that someone keeps me company in my loneliness and isolation. But this particular meal, I was sitting at a fast casual spot for dinner grab some food. I sit down with my phone. I think I even put my headphones in. And all of a sudden, I just noticed to the side this man who was probably mid to late 30s, overweight, wasn't dressed sharp, was in a casual t-shirt, some baggy jeans from a worldly vantage point. Didn't seem like he had tons going on. Didn't seem like he was really going for anything. I mean, who knows? Who knows what kind of judgments are worth being made when you just see someone over who they are. But My initial impulse was not that here was a person of true worldly ambition or success. And yet what struck me about him was that rather than have headphones in, rather than pull out his phone, he was alone for his meal. And yet as he sat at this table, he was looking up and with every bite of food, he was just going, "Mm, wow, this is good. Mm, 
this is really good. And at some point, someone who worked at the restaurant walks over, I think was handing him, you know, forks or something. And as she hands it to him, he looks at her and says, this is just great. Thank you so much for this meal. Like this food tastes delicious. I really enjoyed it. And of course, uh, this blessed waitress looked at him and was like, oh, uh, good. (laughs) You know, glad you're enjoying it. This is a little awkward, a little uncomfortable. But as she walks away, he's just nodding his head, like fully present in this moment fully delighting in the food that was sitting in front of him not a care in the world and i think i see him at one point look glimpse outside because of course he's actually looking up while i'm just looking down at my phone and as he looks outside he just sort of says quietly enough to himself but just loud enough for me to hear him what a beautiful day what a beautiful day as i remember this scene so vivid so it caught me so unaware i was actually taken back to augustine and to this moment with the beggar where here in my frantic attempts to escape my isolation and loneliness i saw this sign this man who was sitting and eating a meal by himself who had learned the secret of happiness by simply being present to his meal in a way that demonstrated how much further he was in his identity than I, how much more secure and established his identity was than my own. Now, of course, I have no idea whether this man was a Christian, what was going on in his night, what social strangeness was taking place, how often he did this, any more details about his life. But man, that moment, you know, those moments become these great invitations. And Augustine just has enough wherewithal as he's in the middle of a sort of crumbling crisis of identity, realizing that the things he had built up for himself aren't really standing up, the center's not holding in this land of shadows that he wanders. He sees this invitation through a beggar who is more happy in his drunkenness than he can achieve working in the emperor's courts, and Augustine is forced to ponder, have I set my sights on the right path to wisdom? Is happiness going to be found the way that I am currently walking? Now, it's interesting, Augustine's going to mention in book six some of his key friendships. He tells some fun stories. He says that he has this group of friends around him in Milan. You can just tell Augustine was living life in community. He was deeply fellowshipped with kindred souls and that this was a true gift to Augustine is an important aspect of what our identity is going to require. Yet all these friends start wrestling with the fact that the pressures in society is that they need to get married. In fact, Augustine in his influential position in the imperial court, is in a pretty good place to attempt to get married at this point to someone very successful to secure a lot of wealth. And he actually tells the story that his mom secures for him a marriage proposal because his dad had passed away. His mom's there in Milan probably to negotiate it. That was probably one of the reasons why she followed him. The family probably knew Augustine did have brothers and sisters, but there's a sense in which he's the successful one that they're all sort of hanging on, that if he can make it in Roman society, they'll all get a leg up. So his mom was probably there to help secure and make sure all this happened. And as Roman custom entailed, he is committed, he's engaged to a 12-year-old who he will have to wait until she is 14 for her to become the legal age of marriage. Now, let me be clear. I am as horrified and repulsed by that aspect of Roman society as I'm sure you are. Augustine doesn't necessarily condemn it per se. It was just how it was. It was how most ancient societies navigated marriage. It was pretty common for a man to be a bit older, a bit more secure, bit more established. And then for a family that's especially negotiating a pretty high-fluting marriage in society with a pretty big dowry to want to find the right husband to commit their daughter early. I mean, we are not in a world of romance. We are not in a world of individual expressivism. But at the end of book six, I just want to mention one of the worst stories from Augustine's life. I would perhaps say this is the worst This, to me, strikes me as the thing that, if it were me, I would be most ashamed of. And Augustine seems pretty deeply ashamed of this. While he had been living and working up to this point, he had pursued the Roman privilege of a concubine, of someone that you cohabitate with, so someone you live with. And he has a son through this first wife. Now, in Roman society, he had not officially married her, and so this son 
would not have had the privileges of full inheritance. This was the whole idea that Augustine's true marriage to this person that he has become engaged to would be the one through which his heirs would descend. But he has a son with this woman through what was called common law marriage. This was his son. This woman was committed to him, connected to him. He would need to break off the common law marriage in order to participate in the full marriage to this new woman. And so this moment comes, it had been 14 years that they had been together, that he, he sends her away because she was regarded as an obstacle, obviously, to his forthcoming marriage that he's waiting these two years on. He's waiting for the 12-year-old to become 14. So he says, so deeply was she engrafted into my heart that it was left torn and wounded and trailing blood. She returned to Africa vowing to you that she would never give herself to another man. And the son I fathered by her was left with me. So she beautifully, uh, this, I mean, you're just drawn to see her as something of a victim here. I mean, how could you not? She enters into this relationship with Augustine. She probably was from a lower class family, probably didn't have much money, if any money at all, was therefore not really seen as a highly valued commodity almost anywhere in society. There was a, there's a tension that if she wasn't in a common law marriage, she might probably in all likelihood become a slave somewhere. She would sell herself as a slave to another family to work in that family. She has the son with Augustine. He is in the high, fluting, influential spheres of society. He sends her away. He says it's so painful that it's like ripping off a limb to his body. And she, in the pain, makes this commitment that she will never marry again. And there's probably a certain amount of legal and financial benefit to this that she would have been committing herself to a convent, to some sort of female monastery where she could now live a life of prayer and humility and be provided for without having to offer herself in servitude. But here's the worst part. All of that is terrible. And Augustine, in the way he phrased it, at least to my reading, I mean, he's been wrung over the coals for this, but I think he knew. I think he knew how bad all of this was. But in just how terrible all this was, Augustine says he himself couldn't bear to face the next two years after sending her away without having the company and intimacy that female companionship and sexuality could provide. And so he goes and gets another woman, which he says is in no sense his wife, so that, and this is Augustine's word, that my soul's malady might be sustained in its pristine vigor or even aggravated as it was conducted under the escort of inveterate custom into the realm of matrimony. So that, and this is Augustine's phrase, the wound inflicted on me by the earlier separation did not heal. After the fever and the immediate acute pain had dulled, it putrefied and the pain became a cold despair. I think there's no way to excuse Augustine's behavior here. If you're looking for a hero, if you're looking for a saint, Augustine is trying to convey to you his heart was not pure. Instead, there was a sickness in his soul, and it has not yet been healed. And I think this too is helpful for identity conversations. We live in this strange societal moment where there's a lot of honor shame, a lot of honor shame around social media posts, this sense in which Everyone is free to do whatever they want, except if you question or critique or attempt to shame me about these certain aspects of what I've done or who I've been, then I'm going to shame you. And at the same time, I'm allowed to shame you if something you've done I deem to be particularly disturbing or repressive or aggravating to a minority or to a oppressed people group. On the one hand, I get our cultural moment. I get why we're using shame because there's really no moral laws or structures through which we can enforce any sense of the good in our society. But on the other hand, I think this is a good example in Augustine's life to highlight that all of us, all of us have an incredible amount of darkness within our own hearts. All of us, if we're probably being honest, I mean, I don't know what you've done. I only know what I've done. I know I have these incredibly embarrassing moments, horrifying moments, and some of them society would look at and say, 
what? That, a theft from a pear tree? You know, that's nothing. That's not very embarrassing. Why would you be ashamed of that? And others, society would look at it and go, oh, that is disturbing. How could you be so sick? That's disgusting. Our temptation in reading Augustine as he's working through his confessions is to judge his sins. You know, a lot of commentators I've read would suggest, oh, Augustine, when he describes sexuality, I mean, he was being so over the top. Like he was just being a normal teenager. He was just sleeping around. But then they get to this scene where Augustine abandons his common law wife and he takes on another partner and they're like, what a horrible misogynistic pig. (laughs) You know, like this is disturbing that you would so decimate such a vulnerable party. And I think rather than excuse any of that behavior, what Augustine's trying to say is, my heart is not pure, right? Like I am twisted in on myself. My love was for myself. I was seeking my own self-love in pride. I just wanted to build up me. That's all I was ever invested in seeking. And so some forms of my pride, some forms of my sin, you're going to look at and say, well, that's not that bad. That's pretty acceptable to me. But it was still all about me. It was still all about my own selfish ambition and my own gain, my own greed, my own self-protectiveness. And yet there's these other aspects of my life that if you knew them about me, you'd go, well, that is terrifying. And you're right. It is horrible. It is utterly despicable the self-interest of Augustine that would send away this vulnerable woman who would commit herself to a life of celibacy and service to the Lord when he not only is waiting on this child bride who is going to get him a lot of money to become eligible for his wife, but he then will take on another woman just because he can't go without sexual companionship. I mean, this is, this is the, the heart of darkness. This is the place where sin is so tangled that Augustine probably even at the time knew. He knew. You sense it in the way he kind of phrases it. This woman I sent away from me was better than me, and I couldn't even match the integrity she had in this temporary window where I was meant to be waiting. And yet what's mounting in Augustine as his sin is mounting, and I do think the scriptures talk this way. I think the Apostle Paul especially gets this. What starts mounting in you as your sin starts culminating is you start getting more and more frantic despair in your identity. Like, you know you're not right. You know things are not well within you. And so you start feeling this pressure bubbling up. It's mounting. Like, you've got to sort this out. You've got to get this clear. You've got to figure out who you are. Because if you keep going this way, you're just going to keep hurting people. And so Augustine, in this moment, is starting to feel the panic as he's approaching this marriage that ultimately is about selfish success and prominence and establishing himself society in the world. He's just had a limb ripped off of him as his common-law wife has been sent away, and he goes to staunch the bleeding in a selfish move, and he finds that it's not working. It's putrefying. It's getting bileless and infected. This is the wound of the soul, and Augustine sees that God in his mercy allows us to be wounded even as God attempts to to pull us into himself, to heal us. This is ultimately what Augustine's looking for in his identity. It's what we're looking for as well. So then just briefly to close, book seven is going to hold the final prelude to Augustine's conversion. We're not going to get to Augustine's conversion until the next episode. In book seven, something interesting takes place in Augustine's intellectual journey. It's held a lot of controversy and studies on Augustine. Augustine is going to get his hands on the writings of the Platonists. So specifically, Porphyry and Plotinus, who were two writers who had built out and developed the early works of Plato. And if you remember Platonism at all from your philosophy class, Platonism is all about the forms and the ideal. So Plato suggested that the real world that we know it is like shadows on a cave. And the shadows are pointing us, they're signifying, they're signs to indicate the true form, the true essence of whatever it is they're signifying. And so this kind of breaks down when it comes to scientific knowledge and materialism, which is a lot of what most of us live with. You know, we're pretty earthy. We're pretty day to day. We're like, does it work? How does it work? How does it function? Can we solve that problem? Can we find a better route to go get coffee in the morning? Why is my phone not working? How do I use my phone to solve my problems? 
But if you step outside of materialism for just a second, you realize that there's this need for deeper truth. You realize that what we're all sort of looking for and what we seem to gravitate around in a strange platonic way. I'm not trying to make an appeal for Platonism necessarily here. I'm more just trying to get into the frame of reference that Platonism is arguing the reason why we are longing for more is that there actually are deeper substance. In fact, you might even say there's a deeper law, a deeper substructure than just the material world as we see it. And so our eyes are sensing and perceiving the world that we see around us, but our souls that inner essence of who we are, are gravitating around the true nature, the true structure, the true essence of the world as it is. And if we can only contemplate, so if we can stop being distracted, this is some of where Platonism, or it's sometimes called Neoplatonic thought especially goes, Porphyry and Plotinus are going to extend Plato by saying the true way to get to truth is if we stop being distracted by the material world around us. Our senses are good. No one's rejecting the senses, but our senses are only giving us signs to truer reality. And if we're going to cease the distractions that our material physical world are offering to us, a world that Platonists point out is fading, it does decay. It's not reliable. It's not like even as we've gotten deeper and deeper into physics, it's not like we actually fully grasp the laws of physics or that they exist somewhere materially. Instead, they, they exist somewhere outside of what our senses can attain. And so the only way to get to truth is to contemplate. That is actually quiet your senses, often for the Platonists. And what we're going to find with Augustine in Book 7 is that the real way to get to knowledge, to true truth, is to resist the senses and to enter into the inner being, into the inner soul through contemplation. And it looks much like a lot of people today who, though they don't realize they are potentially Platonistic in their practices, this is going to look like centeredness, mindfulness, breathing. It's going to be the slowing down and contemplation of quiet that allows you to look with your, Plotinus sometimes called it your inner eye, to examine within your soul what it is that you can see. If that sounds too mystical for you, it's probably because it is. You probably haven't done a ton of contemplative prayer or read many of the mystics then either. Some of what I would point out is that the reason why Platonism is unappealing in our current moment is that we are very materialistically and problem-solving oriented. But when you listen to Platonism's appeal, you see why the Christians, particularly the early church, gravitated so heavily towards Plato, often more than Aristotle, because there is a sense in which the Christian understanding of spiritual reality maps very powerfully upon what the Platonists were teaching. And so it was pretty common in early Christian practice for them to say the Platonists actually either were getting truth from Moses, so Plato is a forebearer, uh, someone who bore out the fruits of Mosaic thought. Uh, some even suggested that Plato was reading the Mosaic law. And the Platonists for sure that Augustine would have been reading were claimed to be offering, uh, in some ways, just techniques that would be very easily christened. They would be taken over by Christ and used as a method of prayer practice to contemplate the inner mysteries and workings of God. So I'm not going to attempt to solve at this point all of the complexities of sifting through one of the major topic points that scholars for years just got lost in around Augustine was how much Platonism influenced Augustine. This book, Book 7, is often the key book that is pointed to around Platonism. What was easy to miss in some of those controversies that I will point out is that Augustine is going to read the Platonists. He's going to be very compelled by the Platonists and by their vision of reality. They're going to help him to see his main Platonic insight that they broke through when it came to his identity barriers around God was the understanding that God is not material, but that God is actually spiritual. We could spend a lot longer on that, but the, the point is, if you think God is to be found in the material world, like if you're picturing God always as a man, as a man with a white beard, or 
out of being in the sky that exists somewhere, then you're going to keep struggling. Your mind's going to keep tripping on the truths of Christianity or maybe even on the existence of God at all. But if you can get there with the Platonist that there is a deeper structure and law to reality, then what you can uncover is that God is spirit, that God is everywhere, that God is accessible, and yet that God can reveal God's self to us through God's word. And so this is where Augustine goes. He says in pursuing the Platonist writing, he has a moment where he uses Platonic techniques to contemplate God, and he's going to write extensively in book seven about the mystery of evil. And he's going to begin to articulate his sense in which evil is nothing but a derivation, a rusting over of the good. But in his contemplation, you hear him sort of wrestling through some of his intellectual quandaries in this moment. He says for just a minute as he's contemplating, he glimpses this infinitude. So he has the experience that many describe. Augustine's not crazy here, that if you contemplate long enough, you glimpse something like God, infinite love, infinite power. People who are and aren't Christians describe the experience, particularly for those who use LSD, right? That they at some point encountered the divine love, the all-knowing force that unifies all matter and substance and creation. And it was overwhelming and it was bright like light and it was beautiful. Augustine has this kind of experience, yet in contemplating it, he says almost immediately the experience is gone. So he glimpses God and then it's gone. And he closes book seven with the growing realization that without scripture and specifically more than that, without Christ, he cannot maintain connection relationship, security in God. So essentially, he has these breakthroughs. He has these contemplative breakthroughs. He sees, he glimpses the inner reality of the God he's been looking for his whole life, and yet he realizes that these breakthroughs on their own, using Platonic techniques of meditation and contemplation, they still don't give him the firm grasp, the firm foundation that his soul is longing for, and that he increasingly is seeing his identity needs. Isn't that kind of fascinating? There's, there's something there for us. I think I'm still unpacking this one, that when it comes to our identity, there's so much to be found within, I think particularly of therapy. I love therapy. I love mental health therapists and who sit down and who can ponder with you the inner mysteries of yourself. But there's a danger to our techniques that in contemplating, we think we can arrive at some sort of knowledge, insight, or breakthrough. And what Augustine says so beautifully, so clearly in book seven, is that he got there. He got all of the breakthrough he had been longing for. He found all of the self-insight that was possible to him on his own. I mean, he was literally contemplating the mysteries of evil and then sees this inner glimpse of God. But he realizes that in ascending to those heights out of his own efforts, he just as quickly falls. And he says as soon as the image fades, he's left with an even deeper sense of emptiness than he had before he glimpsed God. I wonder I wonder if for so many of us, if there's any thread here to pull together for identity as we close out this episode, for so many of us, our identities begin moving towards God. Maybe you even became a Christian at a young age. Maybe Christianity, much like Augustine's life, has been there for you this whole time. And as you look back on your life, what you can begin to see is that simultaneously, you have been distracted, you have been delayed. And you have every time you sought in your own efforts to build this tower, to climb the rungs of self-knowledge, self-ambition, self-success. Every time your hand goes up, you slip and you keep falling back down. And Augustine starts to realize towards the end of book seven, he can't keep climbing if he wants to find happiness. He can't keep climbing if even more than happiness he's going to find God. Instead, he's going to need someone, someone who helps him climb down the path of humility. Yet, if that's true, Augustine has also seen that there's this thread as he looks back that the hand, 
the mysterious providential hand of God had been steering him. This hand of God had pressed him to go to Rome and then pressed him to move from Rome to Milan, had pressed him into the path of Ambrose, had pressed his mother to follow behind him, had pulled away from him that which he was relying on, that which he was leaning on, had disrupted him with these scenes of the beggars, of these friendships that were pulling out the more that Augustine was longing for in life and yet showing him the futility of seeking it all on his own. This whole time, God is there. The Spirit of God is calling and pulling gravitationally the prodigal's heart back to God. So where we're going next is to the famous scene of the confessions, the next time Augustine finds himself under a tree. And yet, I hope to leave you in this episode with the hopefulness. If you try to climb up, you're going to keep slipping. But in your life, God has been preparing you, has been calling you, has even been pulling you to allow yourself to be led back down through this path of humility. And Augustine's going to end book seven this way. What is a human wretch to do? Who will free him from this death-laden body, if not your grace, given through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom you begotten, co-eternal with yourself, and created at the beginning of all your works? In him, the ruler of this world found nothing that deserved death, yet slew him all the same, so that the record of debt that stood against us was annulled. There's going to be this pull back to Christ, this pull back to God, and I can't wait for us next episode to unpack what it is that turns Augustine's heart. So until next time, this has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Grace and peace.